0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Good morning, everybody, again. Good to see you all here. Thanks for getting up early in the cold and coming out once again to turn to God's Word together. Good to see everybody. I hope you all slept well. Hope you're all having a good time. And I hope God's blessing you all in His Word and in the fellowship with one another. If you've got Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6 this morning. As you're turning there, let's remember just a little bit about last night, because it will orient us towards what we're looking at today. Last night, we looked at two passages from God's Word together as we started thinking about what it is that defines us. That's our governing question here. What defines us? What defines our lives in the ultimate sense, according to the God who made us? And so in Romans 5 last night, we saw the great gospel contrast, right, between the first man, Adam, and who Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who was designated by God to be the representative, the the head of a new race of redeemed human beings through faith in Him. And so Paul taught us that where sin and death came into the world through Adam, On on the other hand, grace and righteousness and justification and life came through Christ to all who are in Him by faith. And so we started to get a taste of this language that Paul's using all throughout the New Testament. Not just about there being benefits that Christ gives to us, like in a goodie bag or in a basket that He gives to us, but that it's being in Him that benefits us in terms of all that Christ is and all that Christ did. And so then we turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we saw that Paul, knowing that so long as he was in Adam, was incapable of any actual righteousness in his life. And so he realized that. That everything about him that he used to think of as righteousness in his life, as beneficial, as gain, as as maybe being something that God would approve of and accept him on the basis of, that all of that was in reality just a bunch of worthless rubbish. There was nothing in him. There was nothing about him. So long as he was in Adam and in himself and in sin that could ever possibly put him into any kind of good standing with the eternally holy God of the universe. So whatever gain Paul thought he had, he counted as loss for the sake of gaining Christ and being found in Christ. The righteousness that is necessary in an absolute sense to be found acceptable by God can't come from us. Can't come from inside of us. It's got to come from outside of us. It's got to come from someone else. It can't come from any mortal human being. It certainly can't come from any sinful human being. It has to come from God Himself. He has to give us the perfect righteousness that is the only way we will ever be found acceptable to Him. And that's what Paul said in Philippians 3 9. God Himself came in the person of Jesus so that our sins could be laid on Him in order to be cleansed by His blood shed on the cross, that He might then lay His own perfect righteousness on us, so that by faith in Him, we might be in Him, and not in Adam any longer. And that's the only way to be forgiven and justified and declared righteous for the sake of Christ's righteousness accounted to us. So we've started to see. We've started to see God reveal to us this awesome truth, That sinners in Adam, which is all of us, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, which itself is a gift, is it not? According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, you can't even muster up the faith in yourself. God is so merciful and so gracious that he even gives the faith as a gift. And so sinners in Adam who have been given that gift and come to Christ in faith are united to Christ by God. As Christ abides in us in such a way that everything that He is and everything that He's done is applied to us in such an ultimate way that it absolutely and completely redefines who and what we are. First and foremost, in terms of our status before God, which is what we were looking at last night. And today we want to look even deeper in Romans 6. In terms of not only how God considers us, what our status is with Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but also in Christ means having our very natures changed. Not just how God looks at us in a legal sense, but what we become in terms of our natures. So this morning I want to look again at the book of Romans with you. This time we're going to follow up what we saw in chapter 5 with the opening verses of chapter 6 as we dive even deeper into this doctrine of union with Christ and discover more about what it means in terms of who we are, what we are, what our lives are all about, what's most important about us in Christ Jesus alone. And then after the break, we're going to look at one of my favorite, favorite passages in all of Scripture. Favorite, favorite verses in all of Scripture in the middle of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. But for here and now, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 6, and read along with me, follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I'm reading, by the way, from the New American Standard, which is, I believe, what's commonly used at this church. So if you've got something different, it'll sound a little different, but the Word of God is the same. Paul says, Romans 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, or old man literally, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, or since we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, in the same way, as much as that's true of Jesus, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you getting it? Do you see it? So with the intro last night and and having our minds sort of prepped to start to think in terms of the categories of of being united to Christ, do the words there in Romans 6 kind of jump out at you now as we read them? We have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, Paul says. We have been baptized into His death, buried with Him raised with Him to walk in newness of life, united with Him in the likeness of His own death and resurrection. Something has happened to Him, to to us, in in the same way that it happened to Him. And so, even as He died to sin, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Him. So we can hear, right, this language of union with Christ woven all throughout Paul's thoughts here in terms of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means. It doesn't just mean, well, I've lived my life this way all the time, and I've had these kinds of assumptions and values that I grew up with and these presuppositions that I grew up with, and now I read this book and it gave me some new ways to think about life and some new principles to put into play and and to put into action and some, some new rules to follow maybe that that if I do these things and implement these new things in my life, maybe things will go better for me. And I'll be happier and I'll be more successful. That's not at all (laughs) just what it means to be a Christian. Some of that's true, but it's like way down the road from the foundational idea that Paul teaches here in terms of what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. So this passage, right, of course, Romans 6, uh, comes right on the heels of the passage that we looked at together last night in Romans chapter 5 where we learned about being in Adam in comparison and in contrast to being in Christ. The, the summary of all that, verse 19 of chapter 5, Paul sums it all up and says, For as through the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even, though, even, though, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And then he goes on, right? Look at verses 20 and 21 there at the end of chapter 5, and this sets up everything that he's going to say in 6, he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, first question, what what does that mean that the law, God's law, you could put a capital L on it, came in so that transgression, sinful stuff, might increase in the lives of sinful people? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, of course, that God's law is bad somehow. Or that somehow God's law causes people to sin and makes them increase in sinfulness like puppets being driven by some outside force. What Paul means in the context of everything that he's taught us and that we learned last night about what it means to be in Adam, guilty in Adam, sinful by nature in Adam. What Paul means here is that Think about it this way, when guilty people who are natural born sinners, who can do nothing but sin, there's no righteousness in us, right? When sinful people encounter God's holy law, what do they do in response to it? They reject it, right? They rebel against it, right? That's what sinners do. They sin because they're sinners. We don't become sinners when we first start sinning. We start sinning because we're sinners in Adam that's what we all are that's what we all did when we were in Adam so sinners in Adam are like the people that are described in Psalm chapter 2 who shake their fists at God and say let us remove his fetters from us fetters are like are like chains or bonds we don't want to be bound by God and his authority in our lives and his law and what he says is right and wrong and what he tells us to do with our lives We don't want him being the boss of us, is the attitude of Psalm chapter 2. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. We're going to do it our own way. So when God's holy law comes, that's what people say, get this away from us. And so that's what Paul means when he says the law came in and and stirred up the sinfulness that was already in human beings so that it came up to the surface and manifested itself in response to God's holy law. So that's what he means, that when the law came, sin increased. And Paul says that the reason for that in God's sovereign, gracious purposes was so that as sin did that and started to reign over people's lives and all over the earth, even so, grace might reign more through righteousness. God's, not ours, given to us as a gift, imputed to us, unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the same thing we saw last night, right? In, in chapter 5 and verse 17, where he said, for if by the transgression of the one Adam death reigned through him, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one who's Jesus Christ. And so the key words there are, are the words receive and gift. If you give somebody a gift, you're, you're not giving them something that they earned, right? We just had Christmas. Christmas. And you give gifts to people at Christmas not because they paid for them, they worked for them, they earned them, they merited them, but because you love them. And you want to bless them and you want to give them something free that's going to light them up on Christmas morning. Sinners in Adam subject to death and condemnation receive from God something they didn't earn and Paul calls it an abundance of grace. Not a little grace... Not a dollop of grace. Not a sprinkling of grace. An abundance of grace. Undeserved favor from God as a free gift. Righteousness from God. The full righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who is God incarnate. Holy as God is holy because he is God. Received by us as a free gift. Not not because of anything in us. It's the righteousness that comes from God. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ. So, this free gift of Christ's righteousness poured out in the abundant grace of God is the response of God to the increase of sin in the world. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And and the words that Paul uses there in, in Romans 6, verse 1 is, he uses the word, it's It's like superabundant. So where grace started to abound all throughout the world, or where sin started to abound all throughout the world, grace became superabundant according to the goodness of God, Paul literally says. So as you already know, and as you can imagine, right, this teaching of Paul's, that God in response to just rampant, wickedness and sin in the world gives, gives grace that's even more, that's super abundant, that was met with some pretty strong objection and some significant opposition. And it still is today. When you start to teach this to people, it's all unearned. It's all unmerited. You don't have to do anything. And, and no matter how much sin is in your life, God's going to give way more grace. right? You start to teach that, people go, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, if you teach that, then then you're inviting people to just go on sinning and be licentious so that they'll just get grace and you're not giving them any kind of incentive or motivation to be good, to be holy, to be obedient. And this is where you get almost every other, in fact, every other religion on the planet motivating people to be holy through things like fear. Well, if you you don't do good stuff, then God's going to punish you. And there's going to be all these horrible consequences and shame and guilt being the primary motivating factors for people to be good and obedient to God instead of God loved you with superabundant grace in Christ which ignites what? Not fear, not shame, not a sense of guilt, but a sense of freedom and a sense of love for God who first loved us and a sense of gratitude to God for doing this for us when we absolutely didn't deserve it hadn't not only hadn't we earned it we had unearned it we had earned the opposite of it and out of all of that love and gratitude comes a desire to say I never ever want to do anything that dishonors the God who did this for me who sent his only begotten son to be nailed to a cross and shed his own blood and die I don't want to do the things that drove those nails into his hands and that caused the flesh to be scourged from his back. Right? This is all what Paul's going to say here, and then even more. So, Paul has been accused of this very thing. Paul has been accused of saying that the free grace of God just invites people to, to not worry about how they live their lives. In chapter 3 and verse 8, he says this. He says, Well, why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and some say we say, why not say, Let's just do evil so that good may come from God? That's what he was being accused of saying. Just go on and sin it up, and God's just going to give more grace. Slanderously, they were accusing Paul of teaching that. And people were saying, look, Paul, if you teach this free grace gospel, people are just going to go on sinning without any kind of compunction because you've made salvation to be easy and a free gift. And what I want you to understand this morning is, is what Paul says in response to that. And what I want us to think about together is, I hope none of us think like that in our own lives, right? As Christians who have been given free grace, I hope that none of you here are ones who say, well, since the grace was free, and since the righteousness that justifies me is Christ's and not my own, then I don't need to be righteous. Since grace abounds wherever my sin increases, then I don't need to worry about sin in my life. I'm not worried about righteousness, ruling and reigning in me. I can do whatever I want because God's grace isn't dependent on my obedience. That's what we call a non-sequitur and it's also failing utterly and completely to understand what it means to be a Christian. So I hope that's not the attitude of anyone who's here this weekend, but if we're honest, every time we do something sinful and give ourselves permission to, that's exactly what we're doing we're presuming on God's grace, right? He's got me. He's going to forgive me for this. I'm good. I don't need to worry. I can make this choice. So if we persistently live that way, and call ourselves Christian and, and, and give ourselves permission to, to just live according to our own impulses and fleshly desires and according to our own understanding instead of according to the wisdom of God's word and the obedience of Jesus Christ for the sake of his glory, no matter how hard that is for us, because it was way harder for him on the cross if, if we're going to go through life saying, I can do things my way and according to what I want because I'm saved by grace. So God's just going to cover whatever sin I want to indulge in in my life. If, if that's what our attitudes are, then, then we have no idea what it means, in fact, to be a Christian. And Paul's words in Romans 6 here confront that with reality. These verses unpack what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in christ in terms of what we are now so you'll notice right off the bat paul recognizes the objection right to the gospel of free grace and this reality that where sin increases grace abounded all the more superabounded. what are we going to say verse one of chapter six what are we going to say are we to continue in sin that grace might increase is that what i'm teaching is that what i'm saying what's the answer By no means. May it never be. Literally. Right? Absolutely not. Not in a million years. In counseling once, years ago, a woman who had left her husband for no good biblical cause. He wasn't abusive. He wasn't unfaithful. She just wanted to be with someone else. She came in and she sat down and before I could say anything, she put up her hand and she said, I don't want to hear any verses out of the Bible. (laughs) Well, we don't got nothing to talk about then. Why not? She said, because I already know what they say. And I already know that it's wrong. And I already know that it's sinful. I know what the Bible says. I know God condemns this, but... It's what I feel I need to do. And I know that God is going to give me the grace for it later. I know, right? We all go, oh my word. how could?" But you know what? (laughs) Every time I say something I shouldn't, every time I speak to my wife in anger, every time I think something I shouldn't, I'm doing the same thing. I know I shouldn't do this. I know it's wrong. I study the Bible for a living but I'm going to give myself permission right now to do this thing because I know God's grace has got me later. We all do it, right? So to this attitude, to this approach to the Christian life, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and full of unction, right? This is, he's not just speaking academically here. He's speaking passionately here. He says, may it never be by no means should you think like that, let alone live like that. May it never be that we presume upon the great self-sacrificing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and give ourselves permission to indulge the sins for which Jesus bled and died. May it never be that for the sake of our sinful, fleshly, prideful, selfish desires, we basically reduce the free gift of God's grace and righteousness to a a get-out-of-jail-free card that we whip out and try to cash in whenever we say, I want to do things my way. And then God's going to take my card and say, well, all right. You get an infinite number of of get-out-of-jail-free cards, so do whatever you want. To think like that is to ignore and dismiss and reject what it really is that God in His grace has done for us and made us to be in Christ Jesus. And if that's the regular way you're living your life, then not only do you not really understand at all what it means to be a Christian, that may start reflecting that you're not one. So let's figure out what Paul means here. It's not just a a set of rules now that you say, well, if it benefits me enough, I'll follow these rules. If it makes me happy enough and happier than what I was doing this way, then I'll follow these rules. But as soon as the sin makes me happier than God's way, I'm going to go back to doing it my way. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Let's figure out what it is here. It all begins, Paul says, with baptism. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. His death. So, the rite of water baptism, right? That Christians undergo when you make a profession of faith and and you tell the world that you have been born again, regenerated, made a new creation in Christ Jesus, that, that right of, of being dunked down into the water and then pulled back up is something that Christ has ordained in order to signify a much greater reality that God has done for us, done to us, by baptizing us into Christ, our lives into Christ, and into his death. The word baptizo in Greek has a a range of possible meanings semantically. Once in a while, it was used to talk about just getting wet. So if you went out in a rainstorm, you, you could be said to have been baptized if you got really wet out there. Normally, it meant literally to drown yourself in the water. So, one of the ways that baptizo is used outside of the Bible in the, in the other literature of the time that Paul was writing in is uh, in a naval warfare situation, right? If two boats were shooting at each other and one of them got damaged enough and took on enough water that it sank all the way down to the bottom of the Adriatic Sea, it was said to be baptized, immersed, submerged, overwhelmed. So this is what Paul means here. You haven't been sprinkled with Jesus. You haven't been sprinkled with his death. You didn't get a little wet by the grace of Jesus that's super abundant. You've been immersed into Jesus in a way that has, has put you to death with him and then raised you up to a new kind of life with him. That's what Paul means here. Immersion into Jesus and into his death, and into his resurrection. God has brought us into such an intimate union with the only begotten Son who is our Savior that his death becomes our death. And his resurrection has become our resurrection to newness of life. Now we'll see what that means in a minute. But first notice that baptism, and Paul's understanding, has everything to do with identity, doesn't it? Not just some symbolism, it is symbolic, but, but it has everything to do with identity, with, with what we are, with who we are, with what defines us. Sinclair Ferguson observes this in connection with Jesus' words in Matthew 28, right? The passage that we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples just before he ascended up into heaven, He commands them, right? To do what? Go and make disciples. Listen to the language. Go and make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the rite of baptism, Jesus is saying, signifying this immersion into Jesus involves the name. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God, now being applied to us. So Ferguson says, in simple terms, baptism is a naming ceremony. We have come into this world with the name of Adam written all over our lives. That's what we are. We're in Adam. But now in baptism, the triune God would have us to take His name. Amazing. As our new identity. So he wants us to understand the fellowship into which we've been brought by being immersed into Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So the act of baptism, right, when we, when we baptize in water, that can't regenerate you. That, that thing that we do can't accomplish salvation or regeneration or newness of life or the removal of sin. But, listen again to Sinclair Ferguson. He says, there is a sense in which baptism does something to me. doesn't regenerate me or wash me or cleanse me. What it does is it says I'm now named out of the name of Adam and that part of Adam's stock to which I belonged and now the name of the Lord Jesus is over me because I am His and He is my Savior and all that I have been in Adam is now His nailed to the cross, and all that he has, and all that he is, has become mine. Not just his righteousness, like we learned last night, but also his life. And this is what Paul desperately wants Christians to understand here in Romans 6. He's saying in response to that objection to the gospel of free grace, or that impulse that Christians might have to, to give themselves permission to go on sinning since grace abound, he's saying... Don't you get it? Don't you understand what it means to be a Christian? Don't you understand what it means to have been baptized into Christ Jesus? It changes everything about who you are and what you are. So he meets the objection with that forceful, may it never be, perish the thought. Not in a million years. Are you kidding me? You're going to go on sinning because God has lavished you with superabundant grace? So this isn't just Paul's mind making a theological correction. It's his soul reacting passionately, emotionally out of of this this great glorious truth of the gospel of what it means to be in Christ, be a Christian. Verse 3, baptized, immersed, not just into Christ, but into his death. Immersed into him so much that his death becomes a death that I die. Not physically, but in an even more important way. And then verse 4, raised in Him and with Him in order to walk in newness of life, having been, verse 5, united to Him in nothing less than death and resurrection. So, the word newness there in verse 4, raised to walk in newness of life in the risen Christ Jesus, that's the Greek word kinos. And that word is a special word. It's used also in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 17, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there's our union language again, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, Paul says. And that word new, kynos, means a whole new kind of creature. Not a renewed creature. A previously unknown kind of creature is what he is now a whole new species, than what he was. Qualitatively new. Qualitatively different from the life you lived before is what you are if you are in Christ. So you don't just get a refurbished life in Christ. See? Polished up. Some some spackle to kind of cover up the old holes. Some fresh paint kind of make you look shiny now on the outside. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Everything was the same on the inside, but they were just sort of polishing up the outside. Take a filthy, gross, disgusting cup that you're supposed to drink coffee or tea out of, and it's got mold in there and toxic junk in there, scubala in there, and you just shine up the outside and think, well, look how pretty it is, and then pour yourself a cup of tea or a tomb with dead men's bones, and you just put whitewash, paint it so that it looks really nice, but only to to conceal the rot and the decay and the death inside. That's not what Christ has done to us. If if our old life was a house, then it was a completely dilapidated, old, rotten, moldering, red-tagged dump. That's what we were, spiritually speaking. And Jesus didn't just come to fix it up some. He came to make it new in death and resurrection. Kainos, he came to tear it down to the ground and build a whole new one that's totally different than the old one. And so, verses 6 and 7, knowing this, knowing that this is true, knowing that this is real, knowing that this is what you are, that our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is Paul's heart here. This is Paul's passion here. To help us understand that we haven't just had some kind of philosophical or religious epiphany. Oh, I've learned some new stuff that's going to make my life happier or better. Some sort of maybe pragmatic change of heart realizing that when I was doing things this way, it wasn't going so good and I was getting into trouble and I wasn't really satisfied and fulfilled in my life, so now I'm going to try it this way and see how things go, and if it's better, good. Deciding to pursue a new path. What has actually happened if you're a Christian is that you have been baptized not just with water, But even more importantly, your whole soul, your whole life has been immersed into union with Jesus Christ and that union with him means nothing less than a death and resurrection of everything that you used to be. You've not been just given a a new direction to pursue, you've been crucified and raised to newness. And so Paul follows up this impassioned, may it never be in verse two with these great and awesome words, how shall we, who died to sin. That's what happened to you. So if that happened to me, why why am I going to continue to live in sin? To consciously and persistently pursue and give myself permission, whenever I feel like it, to do the things for which Jesus died and to do the things for which I have died, to which I have died now in Him. So that's what it means to be in Christ. Christ. To be someone who by definition has died to sin every bit as much as Jesus died for sin on the cross. And that means to be someone who by definition has been raised to newness of life every bit as much as Jesus arose from the tomb on the third day. It's definitive. It's what defines us. It's what we are now. It's who we are now in Him. On Sunday after the crucifixion, the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out of that tomb because death couldn't possibly keep him in there. See? It was impossible in the way God created and ordered the world for death to cling to Christ anymore because death is the penalty for sin specifically, and Jesus' payment for sin was so utterly and absolutely sufficient and complete that it was no longer possible for, for death to have anything to stick to. He was covered with all our sin and death stuck to that. And then when He made perfect payment for all our sin, Death fell off of him. And that's why he lives forever. It's his absolute conquest of sin. And and now he lives in absolute freedom from ever dying again, doesn't he? That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying that everything that was true of Jesus in that way is true of me in him. In terms of sin. My sin's been conquered. Vanquished. No longer does it define me. I've died to it. Been raised to new life. And what that means is, sin, in his words, no longer has dominion over me. That's what it meant to be in Adam, didn't it? Sin had absolute dominion, absolute mastery, absolute rule, absolute reign over my life. So that even if I, like Paul as a Pharisee, said, I want to do something that pleases God, it was impossible for me to do it. I couldn't do anything but sin. I could choose, right? I'm a free... free." People say, well, that, that eliminates human free will. No, it doesn't. You're free in Adam to choose any kind of sin you want. You're just not free to choose to do something that will make you right with God because it's not according to your nature. Well, that's not fair. I should have free will. Well, do you have free will to fly? Flap your arms and you're going to fly up over the mountain to Lake Tahoe? That's not according to your nature. Spiritually, righteousness, not according to your nature. You can sin all you want. You can't please God at all. It's impossible. Because sin had dominion over you. Absolutely reigned in your life, and you were absolutely enslaved to it, and had to do everything that it wanted you to do. And that dominion has been broken in Christ. You've got no excuses. I've got no excuses to say, "Well, I need to. I need to choose this path of sin as a Christian in Christ, dead to sin. I need to choose this path of sin because it's my only option in the circumstances I'm in, or because of how hard things are for me, or because how big this temptation. You got no options." To say that in any kind of justifiable or realistic way. So you say, well, but I do sin. I have sinful thoughts. I have sinful attitudes. I've got sinful words. There's sinful things that I do. I haven't really died to sin because I've still got a lot of sin. And that's very true. It's true of all of us. Sin remains in all of us. Sin remained in Paul, right? And he hated it, battled it every single day. We don't have time, but if we were to turn over to Romans chapter 7, we would see that. As a Christian, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a very mature Christian, we see Paul wrestling and in constant warfare in his life against the sin that remained in his flesh. He says in the last book that he ever wrote at the end of his life that it is a, a faithful, and trustworthy statement, full of or worthy of a full acceptance that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners of whom I am, present tense, Paul says, the foremost. When I look around the whole world and all the people that I've seen on all my missionary journeys, all the sinful Gentiles and pagans out there, full of sin in their lives, the sin that I see the most and that bothers me the most is my own sin. Paul says, at the end of his life, sin remained in him. He hated it. I keep doing the things I hate and I hate the things that I keep doing. Romans 7, right? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death where sin remains in me? And that yields then to Paul as as a Christian and a believer that he's in Christ, turning to Christ and having this assurance where he could say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Dumping then into Romans chapter 8 and the great assurance that even though sin remains in me, I'm in Christ. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when Paul says you've died to sin, he doesn't mean there's no sin left in you. What he means is the sin that's there, the temptation that's there, the, the old habits that are there, don't have dominion over you anymore. So you're not the same person that you were before where there was all this sin and you were by nature a sinner and you were unable to do anything but sin. That old man, Paul literally calls it the old man in verse 6, right? He says old life. The literal Greek words are old man. That old man where you were in bondage to sin and couldn't do it any other way. That man has died. Now there's a new man, and sin still remains in your body and in you, but it doesn't have mastery over you. It doesn't have dominion over you. So you can say it to yourself this way, sin remains in me, and I feel tempted by it all the time, and it's hard to resist it all the time, and I stumble and I fall. Sin remains in me, but sin does not reign in me. That's the reality Paul's describing here. The old man in union with Adam, completely in slavery to sin, is dead. He's done away with. And in his place, a new man in union with Christ has been raised who is no longer a slave to sin. And Paul is saying, praise God. Otherwise, your life has no meaning and you have no hope. Because you're going to look at yourself as a Christian and go, well, I keep sinning. Does that mean I'm not in Christ? Now, where you were once in complete bondage to sin and death, where once in Adam you could do nothing but sin, now in Christ you've been set free from that slavery. And so you know there's forgiveness for the sin that still remains in you because Christ died for it all, past, present, and future. But you also know much more importantly that you can fight it and you can win. Because Jesus fought it and Jesus won. The tyrannical dominion is gone. You've been immersed into Jesus and His all-sufficient death for sin is your all-sufficient death to sin. So whatever sin does remain in you, it no longer reigns in you. And in union with the resurrected Jesus bearing the name of the Most High Triune God, You have every resource, every ounce of power available in Jesus Christ. The Jesus who was raised from the dead. You have every ounce of power in you to put sin to death in your life, in your mortal body. Which is something you've got to do every single day of your life. You've got to repent of it every single day of your life. You've got to grow in grace and start thriving in holiness more and more and more. Sanctification more and more and more. Looking more and more and more like the image of Christ according to the power of Christ that is in you every single day. So all of this union with Adam that used to define us has been brought to an end. Because now this is what we are. We're united to Christ. Not in Adam anymore. That guy's dead. It's Christ who defines me now. It's his life, everything that he did and everything that he is, including all of the righteousness and victory over sin, that's what defines me now. And that's the grid I've got to look at my life through and that I look at every circumstance through and I look at every temptation through. I don't need to let that temptation have mastery over me. And I must not. Now notice, look there at verse 6. Notice the word body. That Paul uses there. Our old self, the old man, was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. The word body there means your body. Physical body. Which is still subject to death in this world, right? Which is still yet to be fully redeemed. And Paul is saying this is where sin resides. This is the vehicle through which sin will manifest itself in my life. So don't understand Paul saying that your body itself is inherently sinful somehow, right? There's, there's old school teaching that, that lingers today that would say that. There's this, this old dualism of Platonism and the old heresy of Gnosticism. That says that physical stuff is is evil. It's the privation of good and that spiritual stuff is good. And we gotta we gotta get away from all the physical and get to the spiritual and 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 transcend it all because this is all evil. That's not Paul Paul knows nothing of that. The Bible knows nothing of that idea that physical self its stuff itself, including our physical bodies, is is evil inherently. What Paul means here is very simply that our bodies are the vehicles. Of sin in us, that they're the way that sinful desires and impulses and, and habits are gonna get manifested in our lives. It's through our bodies. Sin always involves all of us, every aspect of us, physically and spiritually, the whole person, right? The whole man. And so Paul's main point here is that even though sin does remain in our bodies, old desires, old temptations, old thought patterns, old habits, The bondage of sin, the dominion of sin, the enslavement of sin is broken because you as a whole person in Christ have been raised and made able to walk in newness of life. All of you, not just the inner part of you. In your body too, you can and must resist sin. Every part of you, mind, mouth, soul, body, even feelings, even affections. And so living this new life in Christ, free from the bondage of sin, walking in the newness of life that we've been raised to, means all of us. Mind, heart, spirit, soul, which is psuche, which is which is a word that usually just means all of you, including your body. Sanctification is nothing if it doesn't affect our bodily life, our mental life, our whole life. And, and so there's this error, see, that can be very, very common in the thinking of a lot of Christians. And it goes in one of two directions. There's two sides of this coin that's an error. On the one hand, a lot of Christians can tend to justify sin in the outward things that they do because they think, well, in my heart, I really love Jesus. That's what that lady did in counseling. I love Jesus in my heart. And he loves me. And his grace abounds for me, so it really doesn't matter what I do on the outside. Now, be honest. There's there's ways in which you think that way sometimes. And I do too, and we all do. And on the other hand, a lot of Christians justify all kinds of inward sin. My old college roommate, when when we confronted him with looking at things he shouldn't look at and leering at women in ways he shouldn't, he said, well, I can look, I just can't touch doesn't matter what I do on the inside as long as I don't let myself do anything on the outside. Mm -mm. They let their inner thoughts, their inner attitudes entertain and indulge in sinfulness so long as they don't do anything outwardly sinful. Now Jesus absolutely slaughters that kind of thinking in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Look on a woman with lust. It's the same thing as committing adultery. You harbor hatred in your heart towards someone. It's the same thing as murdering them. It's not about the outside of the cup. It's all about the inside and the way that it works its way out through your body. It's from the heart that the mouth speaks and that sin proceeds. And he, he destroys the other side of the coin too and he insists that, that if we love him on the inside, then we're going to keep His commandments, right? That's what loving Him means. It doesn't mean, well, I love Him, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. He loves me, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. If you love me, Jesus says, you're not going to want to do the things for which I died that displease me, that dishonor me. So sin affects the whole of us, not just a part of us. And the pursuit of holiness and sanctification, which is made possible... Through the grace and the power of the risen Christ in us is all just a big fraud if it's not affecting the whole of us, spirit and body. And the good news that Paul is unveiling here, the fantastically good gospel, because that's like, oh my word, how am I going to do that? How am I going to live that standard? The fantastically good gospel news is that where sin dominated me and defined everything I did and thought and said in Adam, now in Christ, it no longer reigns over me. R-E-I-G-N-S. It no longer rules me. So that means that there is no part of me, my spirit, my mind, my heart, my body, my emotions, none of it any longer is under the dominion of sin. And if you're in Christ, that's true of you too. It's got no power to make you sin. You can't say the devil made me do it or sin made me do it and I just had no power over it. In Christ, you have all power, divine power, omnipotent power to fight it and to win. To actually do what Paul exhorts us to do in Colossians chapter 3. We can't read it all today, but I mean, what a that was another passage I considered for this weekend. What a powerful passage Colossians 3 is in terms of talking about what being in Christ needs to start looking like more and more. Having exalted and magnified the awesome supremacy of Jesus and the fullness of, of deity that he is in bodily form and then all that Jesus has done to reconcile us to God and to forgive us and raise us up to new life, everything that we've been learning already, then Paul in Colossians 3 and verse 1 says, since then you have been raised with Jesus Christ. Since this is real and true, you've got to seek the things that are above where Christ is. You've got to focus on Him and His glory and this truth and this reality. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth, because you've died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's what you are. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, if you live that way, you will also appear with Him in glory. And then he gets real practical about it through the rest of the book and what it looks like to live this life that is hidden with Christ in God. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. It's there. It's earthly in you. It's tempting you. Put it to death every time it tempts you. Every time you start to indulge in it. Every time you catch yourself thinking or saying or acting in a way that dishonors God. Put it to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on to talk about fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions, and strife, and malice. Put it all to death. Every time it raises its ugly head. Every time you're tempted to indulge. Every time you want to do things your way for the sake of your desires, which is going to be a lot every day, put it to death. You've got to realize what you are now in Christ Jesus. You're dead to that sin. It's going to try like mad, but it is not more powerful than Christ who is in you and you who are in Christ. It has no power to make you sin. And you, on the other hand, not in yourself, but in Christ, have all the power and all the wisdom and all the righteousness at your avail to slay it. To kill it. Which is an activity that you've got to be doing every single day. Be killing. It's a participle. Continually. Through the course of your life. Don't just go... I'm tempted, I'm going to do it, Christ's grace is going to cover it. That's not what a Christian does. A Christian says, I'm tempted, and then instinctively maybe I didn't resist the temptation and now all of a sudden I'm in, oh, i got to kill it. Right now. Slay it. Be killing sin, John Owen famously said, or it will be killing you. It's a daily activity. It's not just something you do once. Repentance. Not just something that happens at the very beginning of the Christian life. As John Calvin said, it is the Christian life. Repentance, daily, minute by minute. Every time you have a sinful thought. Every time you got a sinful attitude. And every time you say, you know what, I'm better than that person. And uh, what I want to do is, is cozy up to my friends here and say bad stuff about that guy to make myself feel better about myself. That's wicked. The Greek word for that kind of slanderous and gossiping kind of speech is, is diabolos. You know that word? Diabolical? Devilish? It's what Satan does? you got to slay that. You can't give your... Well, I'm not looking at pornography. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not robbing a bank. I'm not murdering. I'm just being diabolical. I'm just being like Satan in the way that I talk about my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And instead of building them up, I'm tearing them down for my own self-advantage. Jesus died for that. If that was the only sin, if you did that once in your life, you would spend eternity in hell. And Jesus had to come down here and die to pay for that. Be killing it, or it will be killing you. Moment by moment, repentance. Living daily, moment by moment, by the power of the strength of the grace and the power of God abiding in you according to what you are now as a new creature in Him. So just as death is no longer master over Christ, because He rose from the dead, verse 9, Romans 6 here, and just as the death that He died to my sin, He died once for all, verse 10 says, and just as the life that He lives, Jesus, He lives unto God, so we, verse 11, so we must. Not, it might be a good idea to think about this. Must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the exhortation there in verses 12-14 through 14 sums it all up and leaves us with the full weight of the implication of what it means to have died to sin in Christ and been raised with Him to walk in newness of life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you should obey its lusts. Why are you letting it boss you around? Don't go on presenting the members of your body, whether it's your hands or your brain or your mouth or your eyes or your ears or any other part of you, Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead, because that's what you are. And present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I'm not going to let sin boss me around. I'm not going to do what it says. I'm not going to present myself as an instrument of sin. I'm going to present myself to God as an instrument of righteousness in order to honor Him and glorify Him. That's what my life is. For sin shall not be master over you. Because you're not under the law. You're not under the system that says you have to do righteous things in order to honor. You're under grace. And because you're under grace doesn't mean that you can go on sinning. It means the absolute opposite. You must consider who you are to be real and live in light of it. So whenever you indulge those fleshly temptations, whatever they are, lust, pride, gossip, slander, bitterness, selfishness, wrath, malice, whatever they are, whenever you yield to them, you're ignoring what you are. And you're justifying probably, right, by pretending that the temptation's just too strong to you, that the circumstances of your life that led to this temptation were so severe that the sin became understandable somehow. Well, you don't know what I was going through when I had to do that then you don't know what you are in Christ. The words of 1 Corinthians 10.13 are incontrovertibly true. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able because you are able to do all things in Christ Jesus. And with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also in Christ Jesus who abides in you that you might be able to endure any temptation. It just means that in Christ, there is no temptation so great. There are no circumstances so grave that your only option is to sin. That's just what it means. To think like that is to ignore the the rich reality of who you are as crucified and risen in Christ, dead to sin alive to God and it's to reject the great holiness and righteousness and power of Christ to whom you're united your life is hidden with Christ in God so that everything that Christ is everything that Christ has is yours Christ I need you know you know what we pray Christ I need more money maybe he loves to answer and bless you with, with that prayer. Christ, I, I need to get over this sickness. Christ, I need you to heal somebody I love who's a. He loves to answer prayers. Sometimes it's not his will, though, but you know, you know what? He also always, always, always answers in the affirmative. Always, always, always. Christ, I need the strength to resist the, t- the temptation. He'll never say, Yeah, now I'm not going to give it to you this time. I'm going to let you fall. If you fall, it's not on him. You've been baptized into him and his death and resurrection, you bear the name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've got access to the throne of grace every minute of every day, to fellowship with God, to cast your cares on Him, to receive the grace that you desperately need every minute. And the power of sin and the reign of sin is broken. Closing words. Let me just quote Sinclair Ferguson once more. By His power, He will keep you until union becomes communion in glory and faith becomes sight. Union with Christ, you see, is not so much about union as it's all about Christ. So look to Him. He's what defines you. He's your life. So let's pray, and then we'll take a break. Father God, help us to not only understand this, but to embrace this. Help it to convict us and challenge us and also give us great confidence and comfort and hope because of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus over the reign and the dominion of sin in us. And Father, help us to not just be hearers of the word. As James says, help us to be doers. Help us to say, I'm not going to give myself permission. I'm not going to live according to the old man anymore I'm going to live according to the reality of what I am in Christ. Help us to know what we have in Him and what we are in Him. And Father, glorify Yourself in our lives, in our minds, in our words, in our bodies, in our attitudes, in our feelings, in our affections, in all of us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.